0: Uh, But I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Uh, We're going to be wrapping up our uh, series today on who we are. So this is the the eighth week that we have been in this series. And um, uh, we've kind of spent some time looking at uh, the, the church, the doctrine and the teaching of the church. And um, this morning we're just kind of going to wrap this wrap this up and then next week we will actually begin um, what we normally do Uh, what you know for those of you who are not uh, regulars here what we normally do is we we do expository series expository teaching of the Bible and so we will uh, pick a book of the Bible and we will go through the, the book of the Bible it might be a paragraph at a time it might be. Um, several paragraphs, a section, sometimes chapters at a time. But we'll walk through a book of the Bible, and we do that because of the conviction that we have about the Bible. The Bible is the uh, the very words of God. The scriptures are described as being um, theopneustos, breathed out, God breathed. And if that is true, then uh, God's word is... Um, is without error, it's totally sufficient and authoritative over our lives. And so to go through a book like that is, um, uh, is great. And we will be going through the book of James starting next week. Um, so we'll be doing book of James next week, but we just thought we'd wrap up today, um, with our series on who we are. And, uh, before I did, there was just an, an item in the news, um, this this uh, last week or so that um, I thought was um, really kind of fascinating. And uh, no, it wasn't about Kanye. I wasn't <laughs> going to talk about Kanye. You know, uh, Saturday nights, I usually like the last thing I'll, I'll check Twitter to see, you know, there's some pastor guys that I follow. And one of them said um said, brothers, it's not too late to remove any Kanye references out of your sermon manuscript. And so uh, consider this the Kanye reference that was removed. So um, that is not what I was talking about. What was uh, the news article that I I saw last week or sometime earlier this week had to do with China. And, you know, we've prayed for the brothers and sisters in Christ who are in China before. And uh, this one uh, was just another picture of the kind of crackdown that's going on on in China against religious liberty and against Christians. Um, uh, It's against Christians. It's also against other um, religious groups like the Uyghurs, I'm sure you've heard about and what's going on in China. But this last week, it was the Chinese Communist Party, and there's video of this of them bulldozing um, a really large church, a church that had a 3,000-seat church in China. And the pastors there were detained. They were arrested by the uh chinese uh government officials and as i'm reading the article um they i i I just something caught me and it says you know they bulldozed the church and i believe that they had they did this during the church time like they were pulling the people out during the church service and then had large machines to bulldoze the church and tear it to the ground. i mean think about that think about that and they, the two pastors um, were detained by the authorities, and what struck me was the reason given. They were detained on suspicion of, quote, gathering a crowd to disturb the social order. And I thought about that, and I go, that's awesome. Not, not awesome that they got arrested, but the reason that they were arrested let me say it again, on suspicion of gathering a crowd to disturb the social order, the reason why I thought that that is awesome is because that's exactly what the church does. right? The church is a gathering, and if the church is proclaiming the, the message, the, the right message, that's exactly what the church does, is upends the social order. The Chinese Communist Party has to arrest these guys they have to because the chinese communist party is an institutionally atheistic government for the, it's a totalitarian system and in a total, totalitarian system you cannot abide some other authority above you correct the state Is absolute. You cannot have anything higher in authority. And so any church that would preach. That the government is not absolute. A dictator or leader is not absolute. That Christ is absolute. That he is king of kings and lord of lords. Is a threat. To a totalitarian government. Right. And so the church that gathers together and acknowledges that Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the father is king of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee must bow and every tongue must confess Jesus Christ to the glory of God, the father. Is a threat to all of the powers of the world that would set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. Jesus is king. And I keep, it reminds me of the early church. You know, we started this series, we were looking at some of the chapters in Acts that uh, conveyed what was happening in the early church. And where we left off in Acts. Immediately, the leaders of the church were arrested. They were arrested in chapter four. They were detained by the authorities again in chapter five. Everywhere they went, they were a threat to the authorities, the religious authorities. And it kind of culminates with this. And this is what I thought of when I thought about these two pastors being detained on gathering a crowd to disturb the social order. Uh, I thought of the authorities In Acts chapter 17, coming to the house where they were meeting and uh, Paul and the other parts of his party had left. And it was just Jason and the church that was meeting there. And in Acts chapter 17, verses six and seven, it says, and they could not find them, meaning Paul and his missionary group. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Jesus is king. We announce Jesus is king and Lord of lords. There is none higher. And friends, if we ever got in trouble one day, I hope that's what we would get in trouble for. I hope we, I, I, I. I'm grateful for the freedoms and the liberties that we have in this country. But at one point, sometime down the road, we should not be surprised at all because the scriptures tell us and warn us to this effect. We should not be surprised if we experience persecution, if we are preaching that Jesus is king and there is no other. We should not be surprised that one day, and I hope this happens one day, that we will be detained on suspicion of gathering a crowd to disturb the social order. Amen. That was just. Had nothing to do with my message. That's just something I, I wanted to say. And so with that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter four. And as we look at. Kind of an an expounding on our purpose as a church. And as our scripture reading, um, it will be. Actually, all of Ephesians four is going to be our scripture reading. The focus will be kind of verses 11 through 16. um, But let's let's read all 32 verses. So if you'll follow along, this is again the letter of Paul. To the church in Ephesus. And he has just explained to them the mystery of this gospel that though that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loves to, loves us. When we were dead in our trans, trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places And that he has made one new man out of two. He's broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. That Jews and Gentiles are all justified and made right in relationship, reconciled to God through faith. And so this he says, at the heels of all of that, he says this in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futilities of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. And he gave some, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we now turn our thoughts, our minds to what your word has said to us. God, we pray that the reflections and meditations, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you, Lord most high. That you would speak to us as your people and to remind us of the ministry that you have given us As your church. We're grateful that you. Have raised your son from the dead. He is seated in the heavens. And we too are raised to new life. And we thank you that you have given us. In your wisdom. A purpose and a mission in this world. So remind us. Lord of that. Challenge us and convict us. And this we pray in Christ's mighty name, and all God's people send. Amen. Amen. So, again, we've looked at the practices of the church in Acts chapter 2, devoted to Scripture, one another, generosity, the Lord's Supper, prayer. And then, in the last couple of weeks, we looked at the pictures of the church, the, the metaphors in the New Testament for the relationship between Christ and his people. And we looked at the vine and the branches. Um, We looked at the church as the bride and Christ is the the groom or husband. We looked at the the brotherhood or the family of God, that that God is our father um, and that we are united as brothers with with Christ. And then we looked at the the body with Christ as the head and that the entire church is the body made up of many different parts. And we also saw the building, which is the. The temple of God, which is where the the spirit of God dwells. So we've looked at the practices of a church. We've looked at the pictures of the church. And today we close with just three thoughts on the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. And here's the first of purposes of the church. To exalt the Savior. You can think of this one as kind of the upward relationship. Or, this is our responsibility to the triune God. God is zealous for his own glory. God is zealous for his own glory. Let me give you a couple of verses here Isaiah chapter 42, where the Lord is saying through Isaiah to Israel, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other nor praise to carved idols. The next chapter, he says. Verse seven, chapter 43. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God's zealous for his own glory. He will not give his glory to any other and that all who were created in the image of God were created for one specific purpose. And that is to glorify him whom I formed and made, he says. Now, it may sound a little strange. I think we've talked about this some time ago. I think it was in our series in Leviticus about God's uh, being zealous for his own glory. What does that mean? It sounds a little strange, right? Uh, I've heard the objection that that sounds kind of like God's a, kind of a narcissistic God. How, how could God be zealous for his own glory? Sounds kind of self-centered and self-serving and self-seeking. But, but here's, here's the thing. What being is there that is greater than God? Right? The answer is None. I think why it's a hard time for us to think about God uh, having his own glory as his main objection and his main goal is that we tend to think that God is too much like us. We fail to recognize the creature-creator distinction. God is other. We're made in his image, but God is different. We are creatures that were created When God spoke the world into existence. But God didn't. He's not created. He's an uncreated being. There is no being higher than God. So if there is no other being that's higher than God. There's nothing then that could be more glorious than God. So God being zealous for his glory is exactly what he should do. We should be wor- worried. Actually, if the one true and living God, the supreme creator of the universe, would not make His own glory His primary uh, ambition, right? You know, we don't want a God's. If if it is true that God is the supreme, most glorious um, being, then the picturing God is like, oh, ah, shucks. Don't think of you know, like that's a false humility. God is actually thinking of himself very accurately. Now, why do I spend time saying that God is zealous for his own glory? Because if God is zealous for his own glory, his people likewise should be consumed with a desire to glorify God and exalt him in everything. First Corinthians 10, Paul says these words. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Last week, we looked at the metaphor, one of the metaphors and pictures of the church as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's used collectively of the entire church. A few chapters later, Paul also applies that to us individually, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom we have from God. And he says, you were not your own. You were bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Christ on a cross. And he said, because of that. Because you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And because God's spirit dwells in you, he says, so glorify God in your body. So we're to exalt the Savior. That's our first and foremost, our task. Our primary mission in life is to exalt God, to make God our glory. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that as a church? We do that primarily through our gatherings here on the Lord's day, through our worship, through reading of God's word and singing praises to Him, singing songs to one another, and encouraging in the truth of that through prayer and church discipline and the ordinances of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, our first and primary goal is to exalt the Savior. Our second goal, then, as a a church, a purpose for the church, is to edify and equip the saints. So if you think of one of our goals kind of spatially, like upward, is to exalt God, our Savior, and that's our responsibility to the triune God, then this one is kind of, think of this as like inward, among the, the saints. And this is our responsibility to other believers. Now, think here a little bit on this word saints. You've you've heard me say this before. Probably the term, there's multiple terms that are used to describe um, uh, Christians. Um, Actually, Christian is only used, I think, one time. Usually when um, the Christians are referring to other Christians, they use other terms like brothers. Or if it's like addressing them, or like brothers or brothers and sisters but when they're describing like a group of other Christians that are meeting together in a certain place, they'll refer to them as the saints, the saints, which means the set apart ones who set apart by God for salvation through Christ. And so they're saints. It doesn't mean that they're perfectly holy. They will still sin and they will still need um, uh, uh, forgiveness and confessing of your sins to one another the saints is just saying that this is a set apart people who are to be holy and to be different and set apart and so we have really two um, responsibilities then to these other believers these other saints and that's inward this this inward group and that is to edify and to equip now edify that's an old term that's actually the king james's translation for this um the term to build up. Maybe some of you've read this in your newer translations to build up. Um, the King James uses that old term to edify, you know, like an edifice to, to build something up. And last week we looked at the, the metaphors for the church as a building. Christ as the cornerstone. Um, Peter referred to us as living stones that are being built up into a dwelling for God. And this is kind of continuing on that image. And that the saints are to one to another to encourage and to build one another up. Paul says this in Romans 14. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. A little later, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In the. Uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians chapter 14, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. And a little bit later, he says, when you come together as part of your gatherings, he says, when you come together, describing the services of that time, he says, e- each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a-, a tongue or a language and an interpretation. And then he says, let all things be done For building up that's that's the goal of the gathering of the church to exalt God and to build one another up. No Lone Ranger Christianity. No isolated individual Christianity. You need the church because the goal of one another the saints is to build up and encourage all of the other saints And so that's to edify, but also to equip. And we saw both of these kind of ideas reflected in the passage that we read in Ephesians chapter 4. That we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And here in particular, he has in, in mind kind of the leaders of the church. He gave, verse 11, he gave the apostles and the prophets and then the evangelists. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the shepherds and teachers To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So there's the building up of the body of Christ. Now, who is responsible here for this building up of the body? Is it the apostles or the prophets, the pastors, the teachers? Or put it this way, who is it that does the work of ministry? We talk about doing the work of ministry. Many of us think of professional clergy. Right They're They're the ones that are in the ministry, which is an unfortunate way of describing it. So like, oh, I'm going to You hear this. Some people will say, like, I started in this kind of career, but I'm leaving that and I'm going into the ministry. And I think you understand what they mean. They're like, I'm, I'm going occupationally. I'm going from business or uh, construction or finance or education or anything like that. And then I've actually now making a change and I'm, my, my occupation will be in ministry, but it's unfortunate that it gets described as being in ministry because as this text tells us here, the work of ministry is to be done by the saints. He gave some evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so, one of the purposes of the church is to edify and to build one another up and to uh, equip the saints for this work of ministry. It says this again a little bit. You get the idea again a little bit later in this passage, verse 16. Which speaks of the church from whom, uh, of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held, held together by every joint with which it is equipped... When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See this kind of blending together here once again of this imagery of the church as a building, but it's also a body. And then when the body and all of the parts of the, of the body are doing what they're supposed to be doing, the works of ministry to one another, then you're building up of the body of Christ. Hence, edify and equip, right? So the building up of the body of Christ. So that's our second purpose of the church is to edify and equip the saints. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that in a very similar way to our gatherings. We do this through uh, the centrality of God's word. Do you know one of the things I think was very fascinating when you look at the book of Acts? And when the church was started, they they were just there in Jerusalem. And if you kind of look at the, the story and the history and you were to put it on a timeline, they were there for many years, just kind of in Jerusalem. Even though Jesus in chapter one of Acts had said, and you will be my witnesses when you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which is the region right around where Jerusalem was and to the uttermost parts of the world to the ends of the earth. But for many years, they kind of were right there in Jerusalem until a persecution kind of broke out. And many people um, left Jerusalem and were scattered, moved outside of Jerusalem into the surrounding area, Judea and Samaria. And what's interesting is that they, everyday Christians, not just see few, you know, isolated individuals or the 12 apostles or the deacons that they appointed, everyone started gossiping the gospel. They started to go out from there and share God's word. All of the saints were equipped to share God's word with one another. Friends, you have a ministry. You you do have a ministry. You can share God's word and the gospel with one another. You can pray for one another. You can serve one another in this way, and I encourage you to do that. Not every bit of the works of ministry needs to kind of happen underneath um, the the, um, and it doesn't have to happen in a very structured environment. I think that the church is, when it's organically functioning the way it should, you could do the works of ministry with one another outside of Sunday mornings, during the middle of the week, at your homes, in discipling your children, at your jobs or places of employment, meeting together with other believers. So friends, let us let us double down our efforts to edify and equip the saints, equip one another. And lastly, exalt the savior, edify and equip the saints and evangelize the sinner. Evangelize a sinner. Now you can think of the first one was uh, exalting the savior. You think of that kind of uh, upward, you think of edifying and equipping the saints as something that happens inward of the church. This one's kind of outward looking. And if exalting the Savior is our responsibility to God and edifying and equipping the saints is a responsibility to one another, to other believers, then this is our responsibility to the lost of this world. Evangelize the sinner. Boy, talk about two words that make people kind of uncomfortable today. Um, I'm not talking about social justice. Uh, I'm talking about evangelism and sinner. We'll look at that last word there. I think sometimes we get uncomfortable with some of the biblical terms that we use. And frankly, we could have said that about the previous one. I think sometimes it's uncomfortable to think of us, ourselves, and other believers as saints. but That's what the scriptures tell us. But the scriptures are not ashamed to use this term sinner. And I think sometimes we're reticent to use it. It's kind of. Has Judgmental overtones or something, right? But this is, but just think of of this word sinner and how it's used, especially by Jesus in, in the gospels and how the new Testament writers used it. Jesus said, by the way, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance kind of explains part of the mission for why he's come. Not to come to call the the righteous, meaning the ones who think of themselves as righteous and not needing salvation and justification and forgiveness. He says, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus loves sinners. He loves sinners. He loves them too much to let them stay that way. But he loves sinners. He loved them so much that he hung out with them. He was accused by the Pharisees of being, one of the accusations, of being a friend of sinners. That's something for which I am grateful. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Paul declares in Romans 5 about Christ's love for sinners. It says, when, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Elsewhere, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this is why I think the lesson we have from this here is let's not be afraid to call this term, to use this term. And to use it of ourselves. Paul did, right? He says, Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But Jesus loves sinners. And all of heaven and earth rejoices when sinners find repentance. There's a celebration, Jesus told us. And so sinners, are what, who Jesus loves... And sinners are who Jesus forgives and heals and restores. Sinners is what we are. So I don't think we should be hesitant to use this word sinner. But here's the the other word that tends to be a little bit uncomfortable. And this is the word evangelize. Evangelize. What does that word mean today? I think some of us get a lot of uh, images come to our mind when we think of uh, evangel evangelical and things like that. Many of us think of various methods of evangelism. Some of us maybe think of it's just a, a demographic that uh, gets cited on news, um, news reports about who voted for who in what election, right? It's the evangelical voting block. Here's what evangel is. It's a compound word. It's from the Greek. From the U, meaning good, Right, the EV or the EU part, and then the word for angel. So our English word angel, it's a messenger or a message or an announcement. And so, Euangelion is a good news. It's a good announcement. Evangelizo is the verb for that. It's to go out and to proclaim good news. It's the word that is used for. The runners who would run back from a military campaign to come back to the uh, to the main city or the capital and announce that victory had occurred on the battlefield. But in the New Testament, that term is co-opted and used to describe the victory that has been accomplished by Christ. And that salvation has now come. To those who turn to Christ. And this is good news. It's a good announcement. That Christ died. He was buried. He was raised to, to day, uh, again on the third day. That Jesus is king. And you are not. That we are accountable to God for our disobedience to him. That all who don't obey God will be punished. But God chooses to forgive us through his son, Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is, this is evangelism. This is what the church is to do. The church is called to share the good news now, again, I think of evangelism, usually think in various methods like door to door evangelism or street preaching or Billy Graham's crusades or leaving uh, tracts and, you know, things like that. Evangelism is not the method or the technique. Evangelism is not confined to that. We need to think of evangelism as what it really means, sharing the good news. Could be just in a one on one conversation. Could be in a note or a card. It could be listening to somebody in the situation that they are in in their life and running everything through the grid of the gospel. And so, friends, I make an appeal to all of us for us to redouble our efforts in sharing the gospel. So how would we do that? Well, here's, here's a couple of suggestions I would have three things. One, make sure you know the gospel, remind yourself of the gospel. And I usually, I like to think of it in six parts. And so the six parts go like this and it starts with God as creator. And then it starts with man, his creation. And then it starts, then it moves on to, uh, Uh, man's decision to usurp God as king and ruler and place himself over that. And then Jesus coming and that all who offer uh, all who come to faith in Jesus are forgiven and restored and that all who aren't stay in the judgment that they're already in. Or I'll put it this way, that uh, there's a God who created the world And he is the ruler over all things. He created mankind in his image to know, love, worship, and serve him. But man, our very first parents, chose to rebel against God and to make themselves their own ruler and their own king, determining right and wrong on their own. The judgment for that is death. God has wrath against those who would rebel against him in this way. But God is also merciful in that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Fully God, yet fully man to live perfectly in the way that we did not live and yet suffered in the way that we should have suffered. And now the message goes out that all of the world can be restored back to God through faith in Christ, or they can remain in the judgment that is upon them. And so there's only two ways to live. You keep trying to rule your own life, your own way. And how is that going? Or you can repent and turn and return to Jesus as your savior. You can continue to be your own king. And again, how is that going? Or you can bend the knee to the king of kings, and Lord of lords. There's various other ways you could say that, but that's just usually the way I like to present that, those six steps. So I encourage you, know the gospel. Practice sharing it. Spell it out. Write it out. So that's the first thing you would do is make sure you know it. And then second, this pray, pray and pray this. Ask God to give you someone to share the gospel with this week. Have you ever done that? Said, God, this is the purpose for why we're put here on the church. It's to exalt you and to edify the saints, but also to share the good news With those who need it. Then God would you bring me someone. Bring me someone. To share the gospel with. This week. Would you guys be willing to do that? That is. A brave prayer to pray. Pray to pray. Pray to pray. And I believe if you ask God to do that, that he will do that. But you will need to do a third step, and that's this, and that is look. So know, pray, and look. And that means after you've prayed the prayer and asking God to show you someone to share the gospel with this week, then be on the guard for when those opportunities would arise. And to remind yourself of your, the prayer you prayed during the week and say, Lord, give me eyes to see the opportunities and guide me. You promised, Jesus promised the disciples to not worry about what to say, I'll give you the words to say. And I just told you, you should probably work on the words to say in the first point. But at that point, you still are dependent upon God and His Spirit. To speak through you to those whom God is going to bring to you. So, will you do that this week? Will you refresh yourself with the gospel to know it? Will you pray asking God to give you someone? I commit to do this too. And that we will look and be on guard for opportunities to share the gospel with others. Those three things. I think it's quite simple. The mission statement for Redeemer Bible Church it reflects this in, in some way. It's just a little bit different wording, but I think the same kind of ideas and concepts are there. It's to glorify God by knowing Christ and making Christ known. And so, friends, may we go and know Christ and make Christ known. And in so doing, bring glory to him. May we exalt the Savior this week, edify and equip the saints this week, and evangelize the sinners this week. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we... Again, thank you for your word. We're so grateful that you speak. You spoke the world into existence. You spoke your, your commands, your teaching to your people throughout history. And finally, you have spoken conclusively. And ultimately in your son, Jesus, the word of God. And we thank you that your scriptures testify to him on every page. And we're thankful for who he is. Though he came to this earth humbly. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Born in some small backwoods town, and yet he truly was and is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, God, we thank you for your word as it points to Jesus, and we thank you for your word as it points to us on our purpose and our mission. And we know that you've given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to help us to achieve this mission. And so, God, we ask that we be obedient to your voice, that we heed your words, and that you would make us a people that lives to exalt our Savior, it lives to edify and build up and equip the saints and for us to evangelize the sinner we offer ourselves to you in these things and it's in Christ's name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand for our closing benediction. And um, Again, we Fourth Family uh, Feast is today. If you didn't plan on attending and didn't bring anything, don't worry. Um, I made 18 pounds of chili. So there is some for, for everyone. And I'm sure other people brought plenty uh, as well. Yes, I actually did the math. Um, and so, um, so please be glad to hang around and to have fellowship with one another, uh, at our fourth family feast. And then also a reminder that our offering boxes out in the back. And as usual, if you have any prayer concerns or requests and would like prayer, uh, I would be glad to meet you here up front to pray for you. And, uh, and if you have questions about uh, this teaching or anything about Christianity or the gospel in general, I'd love to, to meet with you and talk with you. And so, brothers and sisters, hear these, this word of benediction from 2 Corinthians. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. You. Thank you.